from APM American Public Media. This is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. In her new book, The Teacher Wars, Dana Goldstein writes that many of today's education controversies are rooted in history. From desegregation to testing, Goldstein argues that lessons learned years ago can and should be applied today. Education correspondent Emily Hanford talked to Goldstein about what she learned while writing The Teacher Wars. Last week on the podcast, they discussed how teaching became so-called women's work and why even today it remains a relatively low-status profession. This week, they start with Lyndon B. Johnson's work as a public school teacher before he became president. Goldstein says LBJ was deeply affected by the experience. So Lyndon B. Johnson had been a public school teacher for a short time. He took a break, dropped out of college. A girlfriend of his said that she was really driven to teach on the Texas-Mexico border and wanted to try this out. And so he follows her to uh, South Texas, and he gets this job in a little, uh, what they call at the time, Mexican schoolhouse. It's uh, filled with Mexican-American immigrant children. They're so poor that he has to write home to his mom to send toothpaste. This comes to truly influence him for the rest of his life. You know, he gave these students what he considered a rigorous curriculum, and he believes in the power of education. He's often depicted historically as someone who had almost a magical belief that education could solve poverty, but what I found in my research is actually, because he had this teaching experience, he was more modest in the way he portrayed the teacher's role. He talks about how at the end of the day as a teacher, he'd kind of shuffle home to his little apartment, exhausted, thinking about all the ways he wanted to help the kids that he couldn't help them. And he uses this as president, this anecdote, to say we're also going to have Head Start. We're also going to have Medicaid. We're going to have all these other complementary social programs that bolster the work of teachers and schools. So although he has this love for public education and teaching and and, an internal respect for teachers that I don't think would be matched by any other of our presidents, He has a modesty, too, which is interesting. He has a sense that teachers cannot do their best work without these other programs in place. As we talk about what are the things that help teachers improve and schools improve and education improve, what does desegregation do? Well, desegregation is not a magic fix. Um, In some places, it was implemented well. I talk about North Carolina and Montgomery County, Maryland, as places that are positive examples. Um, In some places... Birmingham is one place I write about in the book. Teachers had a more mixed experience and and families had a more mixed experience. But in the places that seemed to desegregate their schools well, we see three percentage points, five percentage points, eight percentage points of student achievement gains for poor kids without any drop in middle class kids' performance. And I bring up these numbers that sound small for a specific reason, which is that the teacher effectiveness policies that we've pursued aggressively over the past 10 or 15 years have led to similarly small yet significant achievement gains, three points, five points, eight points. Often we talk about this teacher-focused reform as what took the place of desegregation because desegregation supposedly failed. But actually, when I really dove into the social science and the history of desegregation, I saw that where it worked, it worked just as well. So these two sorts of streams of thinking, um, integrationist thought and teacher accountability, teacher effectiveness, teacher quality, they can work together potentially to double the impact of our education reforms. And unfortunately, in most places, that's not happening. And, and we've forgotten in many cases the lessons of desegregation. The point I've been making again and again talking about the book, and it's surprising how many Americans did not realize this, is that we did not desegregate our northern schools. 
Brown v. Board only applied to the southern states, to the states that had de jure or by law segregation. In the north, it was discriminatory housing patterns and discriminatory drawing of these school district lines that led to racially segregated schools. The courts did not ever aggressively step in to solve this problem in the north. As a consequence, New York City today has the most segregated schools in the nation. So we know that very visionary folks in the charter school movement, the magnet school movement, people involved in housing policy are thinking now, hey, we forgot about this powerful tool. How can we desegregate our schools in ways that offer families choice? because we don't want to go back to those stale and terrible busing wars of the 1970s, which you know, had parents really in an uproar about the kids being bused to different schools when parents didn't have a choice. Coming out of the era when desegregation was employed aggressively as a tool in some parts of the country, we get to the 1980s and a nation at risk, which you identify as a, and most people would, as a huge moment, and one that you say in the book has really defined the terms of our education debate. The, the debate we're having now is really defined by a nation at risk. So what was a nation at risk and how is it defining the debate today? A Nation of Risk was a report spearheaded by President Ronald Reagan's first Secretary of Education, a man named Tyrell Bell. And Bell was a real outlier in Reagan's cabinet. He was a Mormon. He was moderate. He considered himself a supporter of New Deal social programs, which, of course, in the Republican Party of the 1980s was kind of a toxic <laughs> belief um, under Reagan. And he puts together this commission that he hopes will create this clarion call to, to make support for public education a bipartisan issue. Bell is concerned about this kind of increasing focus in the Republican Party on homeschooling and um, sort of thoughts that the public school system is this old-fashioned thing that we don't need anymore and let's get rid of the Department of Education. He really wants to bring the debate back to the center. And A Nation at Risk does this the way it does it, though, is by putting out a message of failure. Um, we need to care about public education because public education is failing. And he names in the report a number of ways to address this supposed failure. But what really is the outcome is standardized testing. States begin these big achievement testing programs in math and reading because they want to be able to track whether they're improving or not. And showing that you're improving is great because politicians can claim a victory. And showing that you're not improving is also great because it's a justification for all the money that schools you know, are spending. And Tyrell Bell is quite visionary in that he realizes that testing can lead to a bipartisan consensus that public education matters. One of the things you talk about in the book that might seem boring but is very connected to this rise of standardized testing and that is that education has become full of administrivia. There's lots of paperwork. There's lots of bureaucracy. And you keep coming back to that as a significant point. Why is that so important? You're the only person who's asked me about this. I am so glad because I say in the book it's banal but it's crucial. Because as we create all these new systems that are supposed to take kids' test scores and turn them into judgments on adults, it is extremely paperwork heavy. And it also imposes this burden on principals where for the classroom observation elements of these new evaluation systems, they're expected to sometimes go into each individual teacher's class four times per year, six times per year in some cases. They have evaluation systems that have 20, 40, 60 different measures. They're plugging into spreadsheets to judge these teachers. What we see is that administrators at a certain point, a lot of them just throw their hands up 
and they say, I'm giving everybody a B. They stop trying to deal with this burden in a way that's meaningful. It happened again and again in history. Each time there was a new focus on teacher evaluation, it was principals were really where the buck stopped with all these previous reform attempts. The principal's job has become more about paperwork, and principals and surveys are very dissatisfied about that, that the teacher and the student interaction is the actual stuff of what education is made of. And all of these systems we've built around it to judge adults, we have to make sure they're not detracting from that much more central concern. Is that one of the reasons that tests are as popular today as ever? Is there's this belief, well, that'll deliver the answer about whether this teacher is good? Yeah, I mean, tests, not everyone's going to get a B. So they're going to differentiate among people. So you end your book, the last chapter of your book, with this very depressing quote. I found it dispiriting anyway, from a teacher saying, very rarely do I perceive teachers shown as anything other than cogs in a machine. And through your book, you really show that progression towards that statement in the beginning of the 21st century. It was an interesting place to end the book because I actually began with a quote from John Dewey where he said, teachers can't be cogs in a machine. (laughs) And he made that point in 1895. In the epilogue, I talk about how we can get away from that by acknowledging that with 3.4 million American teachers, the examples of best practices We don't need to necessarily look to Finland, Japan, South Korea, all these places whose systems are constructed so entirely different from ours and where their ideas can be a bit difficult to implement in our schools. We can look toward the best practices of our working teachers to get a sense of what effective American teaching actually looks like and share that between adults to improve. We are in, I would say, a test-obsessed moment still. Uh, And we have a bunch of new policies in place right now that are driving education that are very focused on testing. So you say one of the things we need to do is return tests to their rightful role as diagnostic tools. What do you mean by that? The way the most effective teachers use tests is to look at what kids know at the beginning of a unit, say, check again what they know at the end, and figure out if you, the adult, have done your job. And if the kids have not learned what you intended them to, go back and target better and get them up to speed. So this is the way testing works in the best schools. And when you visit schools, you can see that there's a more data-driven conversation than ever before. Now, there's another use of tests, which is the politically dominant one now, which is to take the kids' scores on big end-of-year standardized tests and use them to judge teachers. And I think there's just so many negative consequences of doing this that I really came to believe that we need to use tests as diagnostic and research tools, not as part of accountability systems for adults. In the the moment that we're in now, though, there's a lot of sense of, well, we couldn't not have tests. How would we make things change in the system? How would we move school forward? What would we do? We, 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 ha- we have to have tests. So what do you say to that after looking at 200 years of uh, testing, teaching history in America? I think we do have to have tests. We do have to have tests in the core subjects um, because with this, we collect data that we use to draw conclusions about the system. Again, collecting that data and taking a look at it carefully is different than creating a lot of punishments for adults based on that data. And and that's the point I like to keep going back to. Don't let the desire to test drive 
the curriculum. It should be the other way around. The needs of the curriculum inform what is tested and what is not tested. I mean, we know that with art, we should be looking at creative pieces of art that the kids make. We should not be giving them a multiple choice test saying, what color do you see up in front of you on the projector? An actual test I saw delivered to kindergartners who could not even read the test that was in front of them. So there are absurdities in these systems. I do want to acknowledge that as I say that we need to be careful about test score-based accountability, two-thirds of the states have passed laws that now do this. So what I'm warning against is not something out in the future or something that's necessarily avoidable in the short term. It has become the reality. But at the end of doing all of this, what is the thing that you think we need to do as a nation? I think we should continue holding our schools and teachers to high standards, and teachers need to hold students to high standards. One of the things we know from research is that a teacher who has high expectations for kids gets better outcomes from the children, and I had gone into this wondering if high expectations was just a catchphrase. What I do think is important is to look at actual proven effective teacher behaviors, like the belief that intelligence is achievable, like basing lessons around conceptual and not factual questions. So for example, not what year did Hitler come to power, but what social, political, economic forces in Germany led to the rise of the Nazi party. So let's let teachers spend some time observing their colleagues who are doing this right, watching and learning, and giving teachers the opportunity once they have proven themselves effective to gain more status and more pay within the profession for taking on that responsibility of getting their peer teachers up to speed one of the things I have to say when I talk about this idea is that time is money in our school system. For every minute an adult spends with another adult, it means that someone else needs to be in front of kids. So we have this idea often that we can do education reform on the cheap. It's not necessarily true. We can move the money in the system around. It doesn't necessarily cost a lot of extra. But these are some of the ideas that excite me. That was author Dana Goldstein talking with education correspondent Emily Hanford. Next week on the podcast, we continue our conversation about teaching with Elizabeth Green, author of the book Building a Better Teacher. Green explores what exactly good teaching is and how teachers can learn to be better at it. A note of disclosure, both Goldstein and Green were awarded fellowships by the Spencer Foundation, which also helps support American Radio Works but does not influence our coverage. You can find more podcasts about teaching and other issues in K-12 and higher education at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects and let us know what you think of our coverage. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can like us on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and follow us on Twitter at AMRadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works also comes from Lumina Foundation and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.